a warm welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett and I'll be here until 6 this evening. An important film screening this Thursday, Rachel, the murder of a young US activist in Gaza and how the occupation of his country has impacted on a young Palestinian here in Melbourne. I'll be speaking with Michael Sheikh from Free Palestine Melbourne and Omar Jabbar. Melbourne University student. Then on to Red Alert with Professor Jocelyn Che, second part of the interview on the situation in Sri Lanka today with Lionel Bopajay. Also the second part of the interview with Sasha Gillis-Lakakis looking at the history of El Salvador. But first, Mr Kevin Healy with This Week That Was. A week, Jane, listener, when the week that was has for too long ignored the dear little children, the kiddies, who are at this time of day mostly ignoring their parents. So I thought we could make some small amends with a delightful little children's story. So sit down, girls and boys. And listen. Once upon a time in the divided kingdom of Socialist Party, there were the good people, the left people, called good because they were better than the bad people, known as the people, although they were mostly the wrong people. And when the right people did the wrong, often with the big world evil ruler, the U, and obeyed any orders given it by the evil ruler, the better than the bad people, left people, would complain and declare this must be stopped. And although they said that every time, it was never stopped. And then after some years of not stopping the wrong, the left people found they were in a position to make the decision so they could stop the wrong. And isn't that good, I hear you say? Well, sorry, girls and boys, but once they could stop what they previously couldn't stop, they stopped trying to stop what they couldn't stop. In other words, they... Well, I'm sure, children, you've read Animal Farm, where the big the pig Napoleon became worse than the oppressors he had opposed. And so, in other words, they became as bad as, even worse than, the right who were wrong, and became even more wrong. Agreeing to support the cries for trained killing and being very, very offensive of their new, very, very close friend, the evil ruler, promising to do everything the evil ruler ordered them to do. So much so that one of the original right-wrong people called Paul, once the world's greatest worst treasurer, who with another right-wrong bad person called Nuclear Hawk himself, worked with the caring employers to steal the strength from the powerful unions and workers, leading to the right who were wrong and subsequent caring business class evil rulers, shrinking the unions and making unions illegal with harsh penalties. Yet that Paul attacked the left who are now wrong for being wrong, although Paul does have a vested uh, financial interest in the country the evil ruler declares is a threat to the evil ruler being the evil ruler, and therefore the left now wrong naturally declares the country is also a threat to the evil ruler, and therefore to True Blue Aussie, even though it is a huge True Blue Aussie trading partner. And that, children, is called cutting off your nose to spite your face. So don't cut off your nose, girls and boys. And thus the left who are now wrong, a man called Anthony Albinguzi and a woman called Penny Left Wing, came home from the country of the evil ruler, and when they spoke, people asked, what's that on your tongues? And they said, oh, it's just boot polish. A little quiz. 
how do you think that got their children? And so in the quest for peace, as determined by the evil ruler, they spend $360 billion, big, big dollars, on the evil merchants of death, on what they tell us is the most honourable occupation, killing people, which is about as honourable as they are. And so all this shows there is no left left. Well, I hope, children, you enjoyed our story. But left people, well, people with a bit of honour, assembled Saturday to tell the left that is wrong, it is wrong, to spend hundreds of billions on killing people and not spend hundreds of billions on what would benefit people, helping the living live better, for example. Interesting, the aforementioned Paul said he was a Bolshevik compared to Anthony Albing Uzi and the Minister for Being Offensive and Trained Killing Richard Moore's The Bad Guys, and while it doesn't say much about neoliberal fanatic Paul, it sure as hell says heaps about Anthony and Richard. Sadly, sure as hell on earth. Mentioned last week, just when we thought the caring business class parties would oppose the government on just everything for the sake of opposing the government, Richard and Coalition Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Constable Peter Duffer, also his predecessor as Minister for Being Offensive, agreed that spending 360 bill um, by making some cuts to other areas of train killing, causing poor Pete to have a fit. Train killing is sacrosanct, like you know. No, we must cut non-sacrosanct, non-essentials like housing, transport, health, education, make dull bludgers' misery a bit more miserable. After all, the 360 bill is to protect them. Kind of like you know. Although then, his shadowy minister for being offensive and train killing Andrew Hasty to shoot, a former big-time train killer who just loves a bit of train killing, said maybe some savings could be made in the train killer budget, showing that maybe again the right hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. As one of the Forkers signatories, his most gracious majesty's home country, big supremo Rishi soon make him poor, said evil China was a threat to world peace by complaining, for instance, about being surrounded by U.S. OB train killer bases, which we know displays the U.S. OB's desire for peace. While his foreign secretary said China should not view the Forkers nuclear deal as having anything to do with China at all. We've got to wonder how evil China could have possibly got that impression in the first place. But again, does the right hand know what the right hand is doing? Still, it's good to have a detailed announcement that we will get who knows how many nuclear killers by who knows when, with True Blue Aussie showing what a loyal acolyte it is, sorry, sorry, true great friend of the US of it is, by announcing we would retain and dispose of the massive levels of nuclear waste, weapons-grade nuclear waste, while declaring we are abiding by our nuclear non-proliferation agreements, leaving us to ponder what we'd have to do not to be abiding by them. Constable Duffer again displayed his Mensa intelligence, putting long-haired commie greeny protests over the nuclear waste problem in their place. Grow up, he snapped, like you know. Oh, how we admire his capacity for logic and debate. One of the loudest voices of long-haired commie greeny protest celebrated his 60th birthday in a Fitzroy pub recently, but obviously he is still a child, must grow up. On such matters, a former US of security operative 
warned True Blue Aussie after evil China mediated a rapprochement between Saudi and Iran, two fine examples of democracy vying for world number one in the treatment of women. This is more proof that evil China poses a major threat to world peace, world order, world security, he alerted us, pointing out the US OBS decades-long mediation between Zion and the Palestinian non-land non-people showed how to mediate successfully. Our even-handedness has guaranteed liberty, freedom and democracy love and Zion's right to do what it needs to do to guarantee liberty, freedom and democracy. Uh, but, but China succeeded. Where it's none of its business, China, evil China, has no right to interfere with other countries' affairs. And while I'm at it, he, while he was edited, evil Russia cannot go on denying it shut down a U.S. of peace-loving drone over U.S. of territory. Uh, but, but, but it was over the Black Sea. That's what I said, U.S. of territory. Thankfully, the threat of a nuclear disaster may be averted by the planet not lasting long enough, thanks to another merchants of death business, the equally responsible, sensitive fossil industry, because clearly we have to make choices, have to determine whether we can afford to save the planet. Ironically that, on the one hand, to protect the planet they tell us we must spend trillions and trillions worldwide on lethal products that could destroy the planet, and on the other, we have products destroying the planet that are so valuable we can't afford not to destroy the planet. So either way, it doesn't say much for the future of the planet, but this was expressed most intelligently and empathetically by a US of filthy rich of the filthy rich visitor, Sean Strawbridge, real name, who runs the US of's largest fossil port. It's in Texas. It's called Corpus Christi, showing the dear baby Jesus supports destroying the planet, but only because it's for a good cause. There are fringe groups on either side of the political debate, and their incendiary rhetoric is the only thing that's picked up by the mainstream media, Sean saged, ignoring the minor fact that Sean's non-incendiary language was being reported in the mainstream media. But it would be hugely disruptive to global economies if we stopped natural gas. See, if it's the economy or the planet, bad luck Mother Earth. But goodness me, they'd save the planet. They keep telling us how much they care. They'd save the planet if only it didn't disrupt global economies. Perhaps we could park a couple of nuclear sub-killing machines at Corpus Christi and give Sean a full hand. And over in the US of one of our very favourites, Woodside with fossils, the primo mega new before profits, told a conference that spending on renewable energy less than half what it is spending on just one fossil, the Scarborough LNG project, was proportionate to the size of the market. So there, it's renewable energy's fault. Become more profitable. The market is king. As a by-the-by, notice former nuclear disarmament candidate but later Socialist Party Environment Destruction Minister Peter Garrett agreed with Paul and said the Forkers deal stinks, which would carry a lot more moral weight if he had not told us how proud he was to be opening a uranium mine when he achieved his ambition of becoming a minister. 
On an item we raised last week, our mother country, His Most Gracious Majesty's home country, praising True Blue Aussie, as it adopted our humane concentration camps, razor wire and sink the boats treatment of no proper papers, queue jumping illegal boat people. In True Blue Aussie's renowned impartial reporting, or in the week that was his renowned impartial reporting, we contacted the BBC for detail on the policy, but discovered no one was working, and they referred us to the big supremo, Rishi Soon Make em Poor, for the BBC's impartial opinion. But sorry, can't help you here either, listener, because... Sushi was too busy scratching Anthony Albinguzi's belly and flogging us trillions in things that kill people. Finally, if we reckon true Blue workers are lazy and avaricious and evil unions are evil, they are nothing compared to the selfishness and irresponsibility of South Korean workers who are kicking up a fuss over their government's very sensible proposal to increase the weekly work cap from 52 hours to a mere 69 hours and that wouldn't be every week just when their caring employer needs them to work those hours yet they say silly things like it will allow caring employers to impose gruelling hours which also don't include commute time and checking emails and other messages time how selfish after all there's still plenty of more hours in the week what about a bit of balance of give and give on the one hand and take and take on the other Seriously, listener, work choices is starting to look good. Good afternoon. Algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the, the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. This Thursday, the 23rd of March, Free Palestine Melbourne and Students for Palestine Victoria are screening the film Rachel at Melbourne University. It is to commemorate the 20th anniversary of Rachel Corey's murder in the Gaza Strip and to raise awareness of Palestine among university students and the general public. Last Friday I spoke with Michael Sheikh from Free Palestine Melbourne and began by pointing out that this screening is taking place at one of the few Australian universities which have adopted the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism and it's a brave and defiant step by students to show what they think of that decision. I think that's right on because Melbourne University was the first and Monash has followed this year. It's a defiant stand. 
just when they're closing down free speech regarding Israel and Palestine for them to hold this on campus in defiance of the university. All right. Well, now we'll talk about the film and I might come back to that later. So in a way, Michael, it's sad that we're talking about a film about an American activist who died 20 years ago when so many young Palestinians are dying today. Oh, that's certainly true. And the truth is that if Rachel Curry was a Palestinian, no one would have heard of her outside of the Gaza Strip. Um, the only reason that she got so much publicity was she was a white American with an American passport in Gaza in solidarity with the Palestinians. That's the only reason that we are mentioning her today. Palestinians are being killed at a rate of more than one a day since the beginning of this year. That is not because the situation for Israel's security is especially fraught right now. It's just a day-to-day business of enforcing a regime of apartheid throughout the whole of historic Palestine, the whole of Israel and the occupied territories, is now, according to Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, and all the main Israeli human rights organizations, a regime of apartheid, which is built on a regime of Jewish supremacy. And that makes it necessary for them to brutalize Palestinians day in and day out. Well, let's talk about why it is important to remember Rachel. Well, I think it's important to take stock of where we were when Rachel was killed, what was happening and what has happened since. Rachel was killed only three days before America set off to invade Iraq. It was in the middle of the Second Intifada, where the violence was even worse in Palestine than it is now. But on the good side, there was at least a peace process. And everybody talked at the time seriously about ending the conflict and bringing about a two-state solution. Now all of that optimism has gone. The peace process died in 2014, and the Americans have shown no interest in bringing it back. And the situation in Palestine, especially the Gaza Strip, is in every way worse, unimaginably worse than it was when Rachel was killed. In 2006, when Hamas won the Palestinian elections, Israeli government officials said that their policy was to put the Palestinians in Gaza on a diet to punish them collectively for voting for the wrong party. And that's been its policy ever since. The United Nations has said that Gaza would become uninhabitable, unlivable by 2020. And yet 2020 has passed and the world's done nothing about it. In 2014, to punish the Palestinians for their resistance in Gaza, Israel destroyed about 100,000 homes and killed more than 2,000 people, overwhelmingly civilians. And in 2018, 70 years after the establishment of Israel, the Palestinians in Gaza, who are now living in a technically unlivable place, tried to cross the border into Israel as part of the Great March of Return. And they're all gunned down in cold blood. The world did nothing. In fact, that same year, Scott Morrison announced his intention to move the Australian embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem to reward Israel from what it's done. And the support for Israel around the world by people like Donald Trump, Narendra Modi, 
Jair Bolsonaro, Scott Morrison, all the far-right people around the world, including cultured leaders like Jordan Peterson, for example, is higher than it's ever been, even as all of the main human rights organizations around the world agree that is now an apartheid regime throughout the whole of Israel and the occupied territories. And these things, I think, would have been unimaginable when Rachel Corrie was alive. It was still possible to write to her parents that she believed that a Palestinian state or a joint Palestinian-Jewish state could come into effect in her lifetime. And now all of that optimism is over and the violence is getting worse than it's ever been. Not the especially bad violence when Hamas and Israel shoot each other, just the day-to-day brutalization and murder and the pogroms against Palestinians by Israeli settlers. That's just become routine now. And it's horrific, but even the media isn't picking up the fact that only in the last 24 hours, four more people were killed in the West Bank by Israeli security forces. And it's barely even a blip on the world's radar anymore. But Rachel believed that standing up to an Israeli tank, she could make a difference. Yes. Well, the violence back in the Second Intifada was like nothing we'd seen before then in Palestine. It's become a lot worse since then. Generally, the Palestinian tactic in the face of Israel, you won't actually get this watching the news, has always been non-violently to resist because they're not stupid. They know that Israel's got many more tanks than they do because they've got none and that Israel wants them to provoke them into military confrontation because that's something that it can win at. But the level of violence used against the Palestinians at the beginning of the Second Intifada more or less broke the back of the non-violently resistance, which had previously been led by women's groups, by student groups, and by Palestinian civil society. So there was a meeting in Bethlehem in 2000 where international Israeli and Palestinian peace activists got together and said, well, what can we do? And the Palestinians said, send international people over because the level of violence Israel can use against nonviolent demonstrators, if they are Americans and Australians and Brazilians and whoever among them, goes down a lot when they're there. So that's how the international solidarity movement was formed. Now, Rachel chose to go to the most dangerous part of the occupied territories, which was the Gaza Strip, where Israel was systematically erasing thousands of Palestinian homes to make a security corridor between Egypt and the Gaza Strip to secure that area. She thought it was her duty as an American and as an internationalist whose taxes were going to support the Israeli occupation to stand up in solidarity for the people who are not on the world's radar. And it's important to remember that she was destroyed by an American bulldozer, which was specifically designed for destroying Palestinian homes. But she thought that was how she could make a difference in the world, as a lot of idealistic people did back then. Must have had a great impact on the people, the Palestinian people at that time, because she was actually living in the home of a Palestinian and working with them and eating with them. She was their friend. Uh, Absolutely. And you see, the thing that people forget, Israel essentially built a wall around Gaza 
locked the door and thrown away the key. The Palestinians in Gaza, their industries in ruins because of the blockade that Israel's imposed on it. So they can't get raw materials for their factory. They can't export anything. They're all dependent on aid. Well, it's not all, but the overwhelming majority are dependent on aid from the United Nations just to survive. And they feel like they've been forgotten by the war. Because remember, this blockade has been in force since 2006. So you've had a whole generation of people growing up knowing nothing except siege and economic devastation. No jobs, no opportunities, no prospect of leaving Gaza and no prospect of improving your life within Gaza. So they feel totally forgotten. And every now and then, Israel comes across a border, destroys thousands of houses. And once again, the world just kind of like, you know, shrugs and says there must be peace and does nothing. So when you actually get foreigners coming over and making them visible, actually saying, we see you, we support your struggle for freedom, and we're on your side, it makes a huge difference. Because most Palestinians, especially in Gaza, feel like the world has moved on. And they're in this prison that nobody cares about. What was the reaction in the United States when they learned of her death? They demanded an investigation by Israel. Israel promised an impartial investigation, as they always do when things like this happen. And then they whitewashed the whole thing. Now, don't take my word on it. The film is about the whitewash, essentially about how they did an autopsy without her, her parents' permission that kind of like was rigged to exonerate the soldiers and how the whole report was just kind of like a whitewash in the same way that they always do when they kill Palestinians. I don't know if you remember that a Palestinian-American journalist called Shireen Abu Akla was murdered in Janine last year. And once again, there was protests and the demands for an investigation. And the investigation found that it wasn't Israel's fault as usual, even though she was shot by a sniper when clearly identified as a journalist and there were no militants in her area. There was a big reaction at the time around the world. It was headlines for about three days. Then it was bumped off the news by the invasion of Iraq. And then the world moved on and Israel went back to business as usual, and America was careful not to press the point. And now America is sending more arms and more military aid to history than at any time in its history, even when Israel has no external security threats and its military is mostly focused on policing a mostly unarmed and totally defenseless indigenous population. I mean, that, that's what we're talking about here the last colonial war in the Middle East that has been supported to the hilt by the United States and its allies. Not only the last colonial war, but a, a colonial presence that has meant that the whole Middle East has been, in a sense, at war ever since. Yeah, I mean, there's been other issues, obviously. You know, there's been um, Iran and the rivalry of Saudi Arabia and Islamic State and all that. But, I mean, it certainly destabilized the region. Israel was conceived by, you know, Lord Balfour and Lloyd George and Winston Churchill as a bulwark to defend Western interests in the Middle East. 
And that was during the great days of the British Empire when it went around the world and took other people's country and gave it to um, Europeans. I mean, that, that's what they did. So, I mean, the, the world has been grievously affected, not just the Palestinian people, by the Israeli colonial project. And the most alarming thing is now, we're not allowed to call it a colonial project, especially at places like universities, since they've taken up the definition of the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, which has nothing to do with the Holocaust at all. But even now, to say that Israel is a racist endeavor that was founded and conceived on the dispossession of Palestine indigenous population, that is now classed as anti-Semitism at the University of Melbourne. That's how far we've come. So we're not even allowed to call a spade a spade anymore. It's now thought crime at Melbourne and Monash universities to say that Israel is a racist endeavor based on the dispossession of its indigenous Palestinian population now. And that is the significance, I think, of this film screening on campus by the very courageous students of Palestine, Victoria. I saw a film 10 years ago about Rachel. Is this the same film? Yes, it's only been screened once in Australia before, and that was 10 years after she was killed. But Simone Bitton, the woman who made the film, the Israeli-French filmmaker, gave us permission for this second one-off screening at Melbourne University next week. Why? Well, because we asked her and because she reckons it's an important story that needs to be told. This screening is happening now that the IHRA is in place, as you said. Has there been any action taken against the students for filming this? No. They've done nothing wrong. They're a registered part of um, a student group at Melbourne University. They've booked a lecture theatre and they're screening a film about Israel and Palestine. There's nothing controversial about that, but they are an organisation that openly calls Israel an apartheid state, which it is, which Amnesty International says it is, which Human Rights Watch says it is, and which all the main Israeli NGOs says it is. And they call for the boycott and divestments and sanctions against Israeli companies and institutions that are involved in the occupation of Palestine. So they've been quite courageous so quickly after this decision, this very wrong decision by Melbourne University has been implemented to do this film screening. But I think they're confident that they will be vindicated by history. You've got to remember, this is an anti-apartheid struggle. And if you have some memory of Australian foreign policy in the 20th century, the Australian government supported the South African government right up until 1972 when Gough Whitlam took power. There were people calling for the boycott of South Africa then, the boycott of the Springboks tour, and ultimately they, they were beaten up by police, they were vilified by the media, they were condemned by people like the Prime Minister, but in the end, they were vindicated by history and they changed Australian foreign policy. And I think the students of Palestine understand that ultimately it will be the chancellors and the vice-chancellors at Melbourne University and Monash and other places that hang their heads in shame, where the, courage, the courageous stance in the name of truth and justice by groups like Students of Palestine will be vindicated. Where is the screening taking place? It's at the Old Arts Lecture Theatre, 
at Melbourne University. 6.30 p.m. next Thursday. Admission is free. Just turn up. You can say you're going on the Facebook page. Otherwise, just turn up and um, watch the film. This is a historic conflict between justice and racism. And the Palestinians cannot win it on their own because they're not only fighting against Israel, they're fighting against a coalition of international Zionist and settler colonial entities, including, I regret to say, the Australian government, which has taken Israel's side in policing thought regarding Palestine and saying that they adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. So I think we've got to choose a side. I'm really grateful to say that Free Palestine Melbourne and Students for Palestine have chosen the right side and ultimately their courage will be vindicated. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Michael Shake from Free Palestine Melbourne talking about the film Rachel, which will be screened in the old Arts Lecture Theatre at Melbourne University this Thursday at 6.30 by Free Palestine Melbourne and Students for Palestine Victoria. Another of the Students for Palestine living in Melbourne is a Palestinian, Omar Jabur, who is passionate about his country, his culture and its history. I began by asking Omar about his full name, Jabur being only one part. My full name is Omar Jabir Tafish Nawali. Jabir is my family name. Tafish is my clan name. And Nawali is my tribe name. Now that is a big combination. And that means I also have a very big family with a lot of bloodlines and relatives. The history of my family deeply entrenched not only in Palestinian history, but also in the history of the Middle East and the development of its society, culture, and its religious and uh, ethnic uh, outlook. That's a lot of research going into finding that all out. How did you do it? This is the first thing that we need to understand when it comes to Middle Eastern society, is that we have a very oral-heavy tradition, not as oral as we would find with the Aboriginal community, for example, but we do have an oral tradition where the emphasis is played on shared knowledge, normally delivered through the elder of the family or the leader of the family. So this is a lot, a lot of passed-down information. It's not necessarily something you'll find in a book, but it's something that your grandfather will tell you, and he'll put an emphasis and a responsibility on you to know this, for it is your legacy, it is your blood, the thing that keeps our history alive. So it is a transmitted to knowledge. Give me an understanding of what it means to you. Nawali, so this is the tribe that we're talking about. Really, we can start anywhere. But I'm going to tell you a bit of backstory, and then I'll tell you when Nawali comes in. This land that we are referring to today, which they call Israel now, and which we still, till this day, call Palestine, this is a land that has gone by many, many names. It has been previously the Kingdom of Israel, previously Yerushalayim, it has been previously called Palestina under King Hadrian. It has been known as Palestine in the ancient Egyptian. It's also been known by the Byzantians as Palestine as well. And under the Caliphs or the Khalifa in the early Muslim period, it was known as Jun Palestine 
or as Al-Sham. So our family has a very long history, not even within the land that we would geographically call Palestine today, but also in the history of, of the Middle East. For it was us who came with actually the Muslim conquest, and we migrated into what we now call as Palestine, and we started developing our family tradition and culture through migration. And it is a deep and rich history, deeply tied to the events and the ebbs and flows of history of and, the entire Middle East. And your immediate family? It's an outgrowth of that family. Nawali is the river, Tarfish is one of its distributaries, and Jabber is another one of the distributaries of that distributary from a wider river. Tell me about your parents or your grandparents. Now, my grandparents and my family in general, we are still, till this day, a farming community. So we had actually moved into what we now call Tul Kevin, a city in the West Bank, in the 1600s. This is four centuries before Israel was even founded, or any of the nonsense that we talk about today even occurred. Our family moved into the city of Tulkam in the 1600s, and immediately we established ourselves in the political structures of the land, but primarily our aims and our objectives was a farming family. And we were heavily involved with the sale of strawberries, in the sale of oranges, in the sale of olives, in the sale of uh, grapes and grape vines and grape leaves. This is our trade, and until this day, we are still doing that in West Bank. My grandparents, well, it's a divergent tree. My mom's side, in 1948, was kicked out of her native city of Haifa, which still exists to this day, but is now what they classify as an Israeli city. My dad's side, which is the family which I described to you, they were actually half kicked out in 1967, after the Naksa, as we call it, or the setback when Israel had invaded the rest of West Bank. My grandfather, specifically, as you had asked, had actually fled to Jordan. And he is one of the only strands of the entire family tree which has actually left Palestine. So he lived in Jordan, whilst the remainder of my family remained in Palestine in our native village, and we're still farmers till this day. And that is the occupation of my dad's side of my family. Unfortunately, the mom's side of my family was completely expelled alongside of the 750,000 Palestinians in 1948. And where did they finish up? Well, you see, they finished up in so many different places. Palestinian diaspora is 15 million now. 15 million people all around the world. Some strands of my family ended up in Egypt. Others ended up in Lebanon. Others ended up in Jordan. Others ended up in Iraq or Kuwait. My parents basically have the same story in that they were both born in Kuwait. They had both forced to move from Kuwait to Jordan. And then from Jordan, they moved to Iraq to study. But that was all ruined when the wars in Iraq happened. And it was at that point that my, my parents, first my father, moved from Iraq to Australia in 1992 after the first Iraqi war. And my mother moved here after a lot of turbulence and the sanctions on place on Iraq in 1996. And we are Australian citizens now. Half my identity is Australian as well. We must not forget that. No matter the color of my hair or the tone of my skin or the way I speak and maybe even my accent, I am still as much Australian as I am Palestinian. Now you talk about family being scattered to Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, Kuwait. 
there's one uniting place. There's a location which every Palestinian is striving to achieve and come back to. And that is Palestine. That is our village and our city of Tulkarim. It is impossible at the moment. We are all refugees. There's about 55 Arab nations and Muslim nations, give or take. Only one of them grants their citizens, their Palestinian refugees, who are ethnically, linguistically, culturally, religiously identical. That is Jordan. Other than that, unless a family member was privileged enough, as I am now, to have arrived in a Western country where they grant you citizenship despite your background, then it is quite literally impossible to come back and to meet each other once again because you run into migration policy, visa policy, passport policy, and there's only one place we can truly return, and this comes to the crux of the Palestinian issue, as it has always been since 1948, since 1967. The crux of the Palestinian issue is that we have been kicked out, not just my family, but the 750,000, almost the size of Victoria, they have all been kicked out, their lands have been stolen, and they cannot return. And without that centralizing place, there is no hope for my family to once again reunite and see each other. For there is one entity supported by a vast network of Western countries which will prevent that by any means possible, and that is the state of Israel. We are very fortunate. My dad is a naturalized citizen. My mom is a naturalized citizen. I was a born citizen. So we do have the luxury to visit Palestine. But for the vast, very vast amount of Palestinians, not even having the Palestinian identity card is enough to get you back into Israel. Let it be known that if they see a person like myself, a young Arab boy with curly hair and brown skin, and he wants to enter Israel, even with the Australian citizenship, even with the rights entrusted to me under the various refugee charters and citizenship charters and the non-discrimination charters in the UN and Australian law and even in Israeli law, for a matter of fact, they won't let me back in unless it's a major hassle and they will supervise us every step of the way. Even if a Palestinian James is able to go back into Palestine, what do they do? They take photos of his eyes. They take his fingerprints. They get all his social media, all his contacts. They get his place of employment his history, where he lived, where he went to, all the addresses, everything, everything that makes a human a human, their experiences, everything, detain you for 12 hours and take everything down so then they can surveil you. And for too many Palestinians, even with the right under the citizenship, be it German, Australian, UK, they won't touch the land of Palestine. They don't outright reject you, they'll surely surveil you until the end. This has happened to one of my family members. In fact, they were killed back in 2011 whilst they were in Palestine. And too many, too many Palestinians as they are entering are rejected out of hand. Australian citizenship or not, German citizenship or not, UK citizenship or not, this is what happens. They aren't even allowed. I remember as a child, we entered the Palestine in 2012. Very lucky. They kept us at, waiting at the outpost for 12 hours because we were brown, because we had family connections in Palestine, and because, number one of all, they don't see us as humans. They only see us as threats, as terrorists, as something that's utter. For in the middle of the Middle East, 
Israeli society is inherently a white culture imported from Europe. And even the Ethiopians in Israel aren't even granted equal rights or equal treatment. What makes them think that a Palestinian will be allowed to enter the land again? In fact, they have enacted new laws in the past few years where if you have a family connection with Palestinians, they have a, a, a no reunification family policy. If they know they're going to go meet, you're going to go meet your family, highly likely they'll reject you out of hand. Can you explain what happened to your family member in 2011? What happened to Palestinian boys and men in Palestine? The system of regime and oppression that Israeli enacts against Palestinians, it is evasive, is in your face. It disrupts everything about a normal living human. You know that the Palestinians only run on 3G. They have limited access to water. They have limited access to electricity. Imagine a whole city, Melbourne, can be shut down at the whim of a foreign government whenever they please. So unfortunately, in these circumstances, violence breeds violence. Hate breeds hate. These Israeli soldiers, this apartheid system, teaches so many young men violence. They see the Israeli soldier march in, destroy their house, break their mothers, kill their fathers, destroy their society, and they turn to militancy. And unfortunately, my family member, he took up arms. He wanted to protect his homeland, and they killed him for that. And that's something I'll never forget. And this is a common tragedy. Just four people today in Janine, imagine it. Just four people today were shot, including a teenager at the age of 16. It is a tragedy upon a tragedy. And we are complicit in it until the Western countries denounce Israel and until something larger than force, larger than life, comes in to impose justice and peace in this very oppressive government. How do you personally keep your Palestinian culture alive? It's hard to say. They take so much from you. They take so much from you. When I was born, the culture is untouchable. You can't touch it, no matter how much you know about it how much you feel it, how much you have sympathy and uh, attachment to it. You can't exactly touch it. You can't recreate it in a place where it doesn't exist. At least you can try. With me, I start off with the history. What was Palestine before this? Before the slaughter, the apartheid, the military occupation. And I say it was a rural culture. It was a family-based culture. It was a civilization which upheld the highest standards of non-discrimination, of justice, of peace, above all else. I think of the Palestine where in Jerusalem, before the 1900s, there was more Jews in Jerusalem, Arab Jews, living in Jerusalem, than the Muslim and Christian populations combined. So when I think of my culture, I know it's inherently linked to religion, whichever religion that may be, Christian, Muslim, uh, or a Jewish, my, my apologies. I inherently know it is attached to the wider Middle Eastern culture. I know it is attached to the history of not only the Muslim conquest, but of Byzantine history, of Roman history, of ancient Egyptian history. When you walk through Palestine, it is like a trip down memory lane. You see massive Roman palisades, you see ancient Egyptian streets, you see Greek churches, you see Muslim mosques. 
So when I try to think of my Palestinian culture and my Palestinian heritage, I know that the number one thing I must do is to be an accepting and open person who no matter the violence, no matter what is dealt to him, he does not deal as an unjust person. Above all else, I keep myself and my community and this Australian community, which I'm speaking to now, informed that Palestine and the area of Palestine and the area of the Middle East is a beautiful, rich culture which existed without these borders once and has interlinking cultures which you will find in Jordan, you will find in Lebanon, you will find in Egypt. The food is all similar. It is so beautiful. And all you need to do is reach out and touch it and you'll find it in the history. You'll find it being practiced by your parents and you will find it being practiced amongst the youth around me for they want a semblance of home and they'll do anything that it takes to recreate. As a young tertiary student now here in Australia, how do you relate to other students to explain to them? Many of those students would have no idea of what it's been like for a Palestinian living in a diaspora. How do you explain it to them? This is what hurts my heart the most. And it is an absurd concept to imagine in your mind. I have been born to a people who are one of two nations in the history of the world who have been subjected to apartheid. I am part of a people who are right now undergoing military occupation. This history, contemporary history, makes up a large proportion of the Palestinian identity as it exists in the current day. So when I want to say to the people, not just my uni friends, not just my colleagues, my teachers, but the wider Australian public, which I know is capable of compassion and capable of justice. The Palestinian issue, if you strip it down, you find three stages. Number one, there was a Palestine before this contemporary age and the age of imperialism and colonialism, where all three cultures or all three religions lived in peace and harmony with the rights to self-determination and their own laws and their own courts and their own systems of government beforehand. Palestine, an area, a region, a civilization for free religion. Can I say that a colonial mission came in to disrupt this area of land for the interest of outside power? And number three, once the second condition happened, there is only one thing to say. They kicked us out of our land, 750,000 Palestinians. Then they stole our land. They whitewashed it. They renamed it. A lot of cases, they demolished it. And number three, they won't let us back in. They kicked us out. They stole our land, and they won't let us back in. And I have every right in the world to be there. The fact that there is an imposition and a body outside of my culture, my society, my civilization, which is imposing this status quo on me, it is an unacceptable reality, and we must struggle against it all we can. And if they ask me, how can we help? There's only two answers I can suggest, for we are here in Australia, and we have our own fault. Number one, I believe in the Australian culture and the Australian community to be able to right its wrongs and to be able to see past the deception and that we are a culture and we are a community which is multi-ethnic, multicultural, and we are all united by this sense of justice and unity and safety which we feel here, and that we should also strive 
to ensure that we address justice and injustice wherever it arises in the world. So we need your solidarity. And that's why I say to all my students, uh, all my colleagues, come to the protest, learn about the history, read the latest Amnesty International report on apartheid in uh, the occupied territories. And number two is support BDS. Boycott Israel. Digest from Israel and hopefully at the end of the day, encourage your government to sanction Israel. For our fight this year, it's not there. The Palestinians who are on the ground, they have their own fight, which is much crueler. But for us here, we cannot live in willful ignorance. A final word? I was born here in Australia. And my whole life, I couldn't overcome this sense of loneliness, which I felt apart from my culture, my people, everything. My dad would tell me stories about the old Palestine over and over again, and I felt lost. But I grew up here, and I saw that once we get past our ignorance, and we are able to open up to each other and ask to each other, how do you feel and what do you need? We have been able to overcome so much as a nation, so much as a society, so much as a culture of Australians. Because within the Australian identity, there are way too many idiosyncrasies which make us all one. And it is an outstanding feat. So all I would ask is that you help me to get back to my land, to reunite my family, in any way you possibly can, to inform yourself, to speak with us, and to ultimately to show us solidarity. So we may overcome this, then we may wipe out apartheid, and then together we can deal with any other injustice that comes our way. But number one is the importance to lead, to show solidarity, and to recognize our strength in numbers and our strength in compassion. Thank you, Dan. And many thanks to Omar Jebo. In 2003, the American peace activist Rachel Corey was killed for opposing the demolition of Palestinian homes in the Gaza Strip. Join Free Palestine Melbourne and Students for Palestine Victoria for a public screening of Rachel, a film about her murder and its subsequent cover-up. Come and support the struggle for a free Palestine Thursday the 23rd of March, 6.30pm at the Old Arts Lecture Theatre, University of Melbourne. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. (laughs) 3CR Community Radio, giving voice to the community since 1976. Unwarranted and dangerous. Just one reaction to the series of articles published in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age recently under the heading Red Alert, endlessly repeating assumptions that would appear to cause panic amongst Australian public to accept the massive increase in expenditure and increased hostility to China. Professor Jocelyn Che has also put pen to paper with an article titled The Defence Establishment and Fairfax take on China. Jocelyn, can you first outline your interest and work in relation to China? I was a lecturer at the University of Sydney in the lead-up to the Whitlam election 
in December 1972. I was concerned about a state of our standing in Asia, so I, in fact, left the university. I was offered a job before the elections, and I left immediately after the elections and went to work first in the Department of Overseas Trade. It was a separate department and then later in the Department of Foreign Affairs, and then the two departments combined. So I've been involved in Australia's China policy in one way or another uh, since the formalization of diplomatic relations. My last posting was as Consul General to Hong Kong in the 90s, just before the handover to China. And since retirement and my return to Sydney, I've held several honorary academic positions at the University of Sydney, UTS and Western Sydney, all concerned with our relations with China. I'm wondering, Jocelyn, why China has been such an interest for you, though. Why that particular country? Well, yes, I grew up in England and came out here as a teenager when my father was appointed to the University of New South Wales. And I studied French and German at school, but back in those days, we seemed to be a very long way away from Europe. And I was determined when I went to university that I would study an Asian language, uh, because it seemed to me even then that Australia needed to engage more deeply with our Asian neighbours. And realise that we really know very little about China and its people. Well, yes, uh, at that point, we knew practically nothing. It was like studying outer space, you know. There was, there was nothing about China in our school curriculum. I knew nothing about Chinese history or language or culture. The successive governments made efforts to increase Asian knowledge through the introduction of Asian languages at school, and most universities introduced programs in uh, Asian culture and history. Unfortunately, we've gone backwards. A recent survey by the Asian Studies Association of Australia shows a very alarming lack of knowledge of Asia, not uh, not just China, but any Asian culture. Well, talking now about the age in the Sydney Morning Herald's articles, first this campaign to cause Obviously, it's to cause panic, or everyone's saying it's to cause panic amongst the Australian public. But is this just the latest? How can you trace back its beginnings? I'm afraid to say that actually goes back in history uh, to the beginning of the Australian Commonwealth, because that was founded on fear-mongering about Chinese hordes about to invade Australia. That was one of the first pieces of legislation that was passed by the new federal government was legislation to restrict Chinese immigration. So the series in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age last week, which was called Red Alert, had a lead-in image which showed a distorted view of the uh, East Asia with China looking much larger and absolutely red, and a small little timid continent of Australia cowering at the bottom of the page. 
and then a horde of angry sort of hornets or sort of aeroplane shapes flying out of this red mass and down towards Australia. What it reminded me of was the images that we saw in the Cold War days when there was a red tide that was seeping out of communist China and Soviet Union down towards Australia. And we had to resist the force of communism coming to Australia. Could you talk a little bit about Peter Harcher, who seems to be the, the main instigator of these articles? No, I don't think I can really speculate about Peter Harcher because he's now like the um, go-to man for almost everything for, for uh, the Fairfax newspapers. He's an expert on China and he's an expert on all matters of foreign policy. Uh, and I'm not quite sure what his qualifications for that are. So I, I wouldn't like to, to say too much about him, but I don't know that we can credit him for having had the idea and starting this series. When I first looked at the first issue, the uh, Monday, the first part of the series, my first thought was, who is behind this? And my second thought was, why are they publishing this series now? And I think, in retrospect, um, with what we've seen just in the week since then, that I can answer both of those questions, and that Peter Harcher's role really becomes just like an agent rather than the author of, of the series. Because it is obviously designed to uh, prepare people to accept the announcement that was made this week about spending, I think it's 300, over $360 billion, billion on a small number of nuclear-powered submarines uh, at a time when you know, people are really hurting uh, financially and uh, struggling with the cost of living and facing what's going to be a very harsh and unpalatable budget coming up. So how to justify this enormous expense on submarines, on big toys for the, for the Navy, at a time when our economy is already suffering? The, the series was timed very carefully to come out the week before the AUKUS announcement. Now, they say it's an attempt to broaden the debate in a manner independent from government. But these five people that they chose, they say, well, they're not experts on China, are they? If you'd been asked to contribute, what would you have said? Last year, and it was announced that there was going to be a defence strategic review and then public submissions were invited. And I think that was the time for the public to express their opinions. And I wrote and published my opinion at that point. Uh, and uh, a bit late to say now, you know, inviting public comment because the Defence Strategic Review is just about to be announced. The time when we should, when we should have had the debate was much earlier when before that review was decided and, and settled. My submission to that review was really taking it back to 
basics. Yeah, sure, every country needs to defend itself against aggression and invasion and attempts to overthrow our democratic system and our, our way of life and our government. Australian seemed to be last year, the Australian government seemed to be basing its thinking on a supposition that China was the aggressor. And my submission was pointing out that from the point of view of Chinese history and politics, they are not a country which has a, a tradition of invading other countries uh, and of overthrowing other governments, although they are developing very rapidly economically and although they are now seeking to establish themselves in, internationally as appropriate to a country of their size and their economic and political power, that doesn't mean that they are threatening the rest of the world. It's more a case of us having to adjust our relations with China to the new reality. It doesn't have to be by making them out to be the enemy. One of the basic things about a defense strategy is if you make someone an enemy, if you regard them as an enemy, they will become an enemy. But you don't have to start by that assumption. Have you had opportunities to speak with your Chinese friends in China and get their opinions about what they're seeing? In that I have a, an academic colleague who after, you know, these past three years, nobody's been able to travel. Uh, she was able to return to Australia where she has contacts who working in the same field as herself. And she stayed with me for uh, about 10 days. So in my home and, you know, without any prying ears or eyes, we talked very openly and honestly. I'm not divulging any more information about her, but I would say that she is not happy about the state of affairs in China, about the increasing centralism of the a government under Xi Jinping, but more than anything else, she said, she and her friends and her community in China were vehemently opposed to any military action, for instance, invasion of Taiwan. She said, I can't imagine what would happen, but there would certainly would be public protests and uprisings if that was to happen. And I don't think any of the reporting about China-Taiwan takes this into account, this, you know, the aspect of what the Chinese public support for such a policy might be. Can we go back to the so-called relationship between Australia and the US? And people say, well, we've lost our independence. Did we ever have any? I think that um, if you go back to that, period when I first became involved in um, Australia's relations with China, we were then acting absolutely out of step with the United States. Even before then, you know, we traded with China when the U.S. had an embargo on trade with China. 
and our wheat board, you know, supplied wheat to China at a time when, of, when they were incapacitated by a very extreme famine. When I first had contact with trade officials in China, they all mentioned that as a sign of, you know, a long-standing friendly relationship between China and Australia. So we have been far more independent in the past than we are at the moment. And thinking about the possibly hundreds of thousands of Chinese students who are already in Australia or who were hoping to come to Australia, the racism they might face if this, what we're seeing now, continues? Yeah, the position of the Chinese-Australian community is something that has to be factored into any decisions about our China policy, I think, and our general international policies. Because there's one of the very important changes over the decades that I've been involved in this area of work has been the growth of this ethnic population now accounts for perhaps 5% of our total population. And in the last federal elections, their vote was very significant and in fact was behind the uh, change of government in several seats. And they all reported that in the last couple of years, with all this talk about a China threat, that they felt they were the target of increased racist attacks and uh, innuendos. For instance, it's now very difficult for, for Chinese Australians to get appointed to senior positions in the public service because of the difficulty of obtaining security clearances. We run the risk of alienating a very large, substantial part of the Australian population if we continue down this road. Is it a form of hysteria, do you believe, against Chinese people? I hesitate to use the word hysteria, but there's definitely a, a campaign being waged to create alarm. Yeah, I think that uh, there's now a very general, very widespread belief in Chinese aggression that I don't think is warranted. One of the problems, of course, is that we don't have any correspondence in China anymore. So we, we don't have anybody who's actually reporting what is really happening in China. We just have to rely on outside reports. For instance, just to give you one example, in the, a statement just in the last couple of days about the Chinese government's plans for expansion of their military capability. They used the term a wall of steel. We will make our army a wall of steel. And the newspapers here have reported that you know, as being in a very alarmist fashion. But in fact, it's not a new phrase. I, I, they've been using a, that or a similar phrase for decades, but not like a, a new development. It's just standard talk. <laughs> Can I take you back to the cost of these submarines? They're talking about 360 billion plus. Well, we know that's never the 
final figure, there's always a huge overrun whatever armaments are bought. In a sense, it's going to bankrupt our social services here in Australia, as I think it's happened in the US where so much money is being spent on defence. Yeah, well, I'm no expert, but um, we all know about the Defence Department and their big toys and their cost. Uh, one of the things that strikes me is that the, the beneficiaries of this uh, decision, I mean, we may benefit in the long run by having uh, up-to-date uh, and modern submarines, uh, but that's not going to happen for quite a long time. But in the short term, those that are going to benefit are the, the British government, which is in dire economic straits, uh, and we're really doing them a great benefit by you know, getting uh, submarines built in, in, um, in British shipbuilding towns such as Barrow in Furness. And the United States, which also will, will um, benefit financially and also have the reciprocal advantages such as, you know, basing their ships and their, their uh, aircraft in Australia. Thank you, Jocelyn. And do you have any final words? I hope that someday soon people will wake from this madness and realise that they've been conned. And can I just finish with your closing sentence in your Pearls and Irritations article? As the goons said, there's more to come. <laughs> yes, well, I'm one of that era that, that often looks to the goons for advice. They have some words of wisdom. Thank you very much. Thank you. Professor Jocelyn Che, AM, is a adjunct professor at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology in Sydney. Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir. We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir, near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Today, the second part of the interview with Lionel Bopajay, former leader of a mass liberation movement in Sri Lanka in the 1970s and 1980s. Here he takes up the story about the present situation with protests happening daily in the capital, Colombo. The regime has demonstrated in practice what it will do if they don't listen. They will unleash unprecedented violence and terror on peaceful sit-downs, protests, assemblies and marches. So the situation appears to be worsening over time with the regime hell-bent on suppressing freedoms for peaceful assembly, speech, protests and marches. Lionel, is this the worst that you've seen in quite a while? Yes, actually, the situation is developing 
to be one of the worst since uh, the war. I mean, the situation was limited only to the north and east uh, and some parts of the south during the war. In 1988-89 period, that situation arose because of what the uh, then regime, led by the current president's uncle, Mr. Jaya Javadana, who was the president at the time, and his regime created July 1983, Black July program, as people say, killed thousands of Tamils in the, living in the south. They were expelled from the south. They had to go and settle down in the north and east. That led to a very unfortunate situation where 60,000 people in the south were killed. 83 July riots also led to the 30-year war in the north and east, the armed conflict. If this current situation goes on like that, and as the president has threatened, if um, the protests continue and then security forces are used and people are forced against the wall, then people don't have any other way out. The local government elections that was originally planned by the president himself and his regime was to be held yesterday. It was cancelled and it was um, indefinitely postponed. We don't know exactly whether there would be an election and when it would be held. So all the hopes and aspirations of uh, the ordinary people, the protesters, they are being dashed. This will generate an explosive situation. We don't know where it will end up because the security forces are being reinforced and uh, they are strengthened. They are encouraged to do all the illegal activities, not warranted even by uh, the police ordinance. Some of the some of the activities they do are not within the law. I mean, we don't agree with some of the laws, but <laughs> what they do is even not within the law itself. Situation is not so uh, hopeful. What support is this government getting from outside? Especially, I think I would like to speak about the IMF package because that is the, the, the that is what they are expecting. Again, in his speech to the parliament this Wednesday, he spoke about the current economic situation and the progress the government has achieved with the IMF loan package. He clearly stated that they are going to relentlessly implement the austerity demands of the IMF. Other interesting thing is he challenged the opposition to declare if they had any other alternative. So the, the, the issue is none of the opposition parties or groups have put forward the holistic, comprehensive and sustainable alternative to come out of this situation. In September last year, the government came to an agreement with the IMF. They call it a staff level agreement, but it could not be presented to its uh, the, the IMF executive board until Sri Lanka achieved so-called debt sustainability. However, in his speech to the parliament, president said that this week, all creditors, including India and China, have provided financing assurances to Sri Lanka. And for that to happen, the IMF has agreed to provide whatever the package they're expecting, I think $2.9 billion. It followed the discussions president had 
with the IMF and also the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States. So United States has many things to do with this. According to the representatives of the IMF, the president's effort to revive the country's weakened economy uh, have been successful. The IMF is expected to respond uh, by releasing the first installment of their loan package. President uh, said that by fulfilling the requirements demanded by the International Monetary Fund, he has done his duty to the country. He wants the IMF to do its duty before the end of the month by releasing the first installment. So that is the main support he is expecting. Then he expects other lenders such as the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank and other creditors to follow suit by providing Sri Lanka further loans and other assistance. President justified the already imposed IMF demands and indicated what is yet to come by saying that uh, his regime will take measures to reduce the fiscal deficit to 4% of GDP and deliver a record surplus in the year 2025. The only way he can do that is by scrapping the subsidies and welfare provisions given to the most vulnerable in the society. President Vikramasinghe says that state-owned enterprises lost 800 billion rupees last year and he says it, those institutions need to be restructured. The restructuring means privatizing these enterprises. I mean, by doing that, what would happen is those enterprises will be sold to enterprises, both foreign and local. Those enterprises will retrench tens of thousands of workers. Uh, according to reports, they are preparing to axe over half a million excess employees. They would be sacrificed the old hour of unemployment and poverty. Past administrations, after elections, because during the elections, they will promise that they will provide employment to so many. And what they did is they forced tens of thousands of their political supporters into these public sector jobs. This happened after every election. So the regimes that have ruled the country for the past 75 years are responsible for creating this mess. Now, the solution proposed is just to privatize those state-owned enterprises, not to re-employ them in a productive way to contribute to the development of the economy. I remember in 1977, they did a similar thing. When the current president's uncle, President Jaya Jayavadana, what he did in the manufacturing sector, he destroyed the initial industrialization process of Sri Lanka. One could look at what happened to Ceylon Tire Corporation, Ceylon Hardware Corporation, Ceylon Steel Corporation, and many other corporations. They were handed over to the private sector. Actually, uh, those who supported uh, President J.R. Jayawadana during his election campaign. In the name of stabilizing the economy, the current regime has also introduced measures such as increased interest rates, increased income tax rates, and value-added tax. They have raised electricity tariffs and fuel prices. The regime has taken so many measures, at least temporarily, to 
ensure the provision of fertilizer fuel and cooking gas schools are functioning to a certain extent examinations are held so it is slightly different from the situation in mid 2022 according to the president these measures the regime has taken have gradually reduced the economic burden and established economic stability in the country now what we have to look at is whether those claims are true how can there be economic stability in sri lanka when there is no economic stability worldwide the struggles all over the world appear intensifying with the deepening economic crisis made worse by the russia ukraine war and the war preparations being made against china in the indo pacific region the president cited saving 500 million us dollars in foreign reserves uh, he showed it as an achievement yet if we look at uh, what happened closely this was a saving achieved by slashing imports including urgently needed essential items medical supplies and there was also uh, remittances boosted mainly from workers in the middle east and the inflation figures the department of statistics made an adjustment to the baseline year for calculating the inflation rate in sri lanka so now the official inflation rate for example in january was 54% food inflation was 60% the inflation rate was almost 100% previously food inflation was running about i think 80% so the new baseline change in baseline year has made it uh, reduced mostly we can see that in the living conditions of millions of people the living conditions have worsened with tens of thousands of people facing starvation according to reports food insecurity in sri lanka is affecting 38% of people living in the plantation areas what we call malayaha areas 34% in the rural areas and 28% in the urban areas and sri lanka is said to be one of the 10 countries having the highest rates of child malnutrition the president also referred to the situation in greece it is an interesting example after the economic collapse in 2008 greece declared bankruptcy the syriza government that came to power during that regime disintegrated with some of its leaders opposing the implementation of the imf imposed structural reform it was also opposed by the then finance minister who resigned the regime cut the salaries of government employees by half now president vikram singh used this to hint at what the government's next moves would be like including say large scale public sector cutbacks that will also cut back their salaries and pensions he said greece took 13 years to emerge from bankruptcy and repay its debts the only thing he forgot to say is greece is still suffering from mass poverty youth unemployment and high inflation let me conclude by quoting the president this time there is no room for failure in completing every task agreed upon with the international monetary fund unlike the previous 16 occasions 
Now, does this mean anything other than structural reforms that will allow the rulers and the ruling elite to proceed to govern the way they used to do it for the last 75 years? What will change? The super rich and the powerful will continue to exploit the country's common resources, forests, water, air, and the rest of the environment. They will continue to be corrupt and wasteful and mismanaging. They will engage in amassing wealth at the expense of the masses. My view is that despite the loans and other assistance provided by the IMF and other lending institutions, Sri Lanka could be in an even worse situation than before. Nowhere in the world, those following IMF prescriptions have led ordinary people to prosperity. So after 16 loans, Sri Lanka will be taking 17th loan this time. It will be in preparation for the 18th loan in another couple of years. According to the president, about six to seven billion US dollars in foreign loans will have to be paid annually until 2029. Many would say that there is no way to overcome the current crisis other than accepting the IMF loan. Yet, what critical measures the regime has adopted to prevent failure, as far as I can see, they have done nothing. And that was the final part of an interview with former leader of a mass liberation movement in Sri Lanka in the 1970s and 80s, Lionel Bopajay. Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 039419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. like to reduce your risk of dementia, the Better Brains trial aims to discover whether targeted lifestyle changes can prevent memory decline in Australian adults. Participants aged 40 to 70 with a family history of dementia are allocated to receive health coaching from an allied health professional or health education materials about dementia and its risk factors. The trial is run entirely online, so visit www.betterbrains.org.au to sign up now. Better Brains is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Now we return to Central America, the smallest country there, El Salvador. And this is the second part of Sasha Gillies-Lakakis's country profile for March. And, you know, this was a very popular movement. Farabundo Marti was a very popular man. Um, at its height, all of these left-wing organisations uh, enjoyed, you know, membership in the hundreds of thousands, if we count them all together. You know, it's a very, very substantial 
political force in the country. But Martinez is incredibly brutal. He is an incredibly brutal leader, and he does not broach any sort of dissent. Um, just to give you an example, for example, in 1932, one year after the coup, when this rebellion is first beginning, Martinez murders 40,000 Indigenous people. In, in that one year, 1932, he murders 40,000 Indigenous people, you know, through use of the, the armed forces and right-wing paramilitary groups. And all of this is funded by the United States. The United States is providing military assistance and military guidance to Martinez and his forces. Um, in fact, by the mid-1930s, El Salvador is receiving $1 million US dollars a day on average from the United States government to continue this, this repression and these massacres. And, you know, this is $1 million US dollars back in the 1930s. So today it's, you know, it's obscene amounts of money to support this genocide. And, and it was a genocide. Martinez himself made the statement that he was actually trying to eliminate the indigenous people of El Salvador because he thought they were too inclined to um, this sort of collectivist action, communist ideas. And he murdered 40,000 people in 1932 alone. In the years after that, um, several thousand people were murdered each year. Um, it, it was an absolute bloodbath. Um, and martial law was in place all throughout Martinez's rule so that, you know, there was no opposition allowed. Freedom of assembly was denied. And, you know, we, we had some of the most bizarre policies take place. For example, anyone who looked Russian, so there were tourists from Europe that used to go to El Salvador, not very many at all, um, and missionaries, things like that. If they looked Russian, they were taken out into the street and shot. That was, you know, the degree of, of anti-communism that Martinez demonstrated. He was also a very firm admirer of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. He actually got a member of the Wehrmacht, the German military to uh, direct El Salvador's military school. And the United States actually gave money to that program. So the US was actually funding this Nazi-directed um, school for military personnel in El Salvador. Um, it was an absolutely disgusting regime that, that used violence, that used these ideas of eugenics to justify all of these massacres. But it also ended up being a reasonably short-lived dictatorship. So it only lasted, look, 15 years is, is still a long time. But as far as some other Latin American dictatorships go, it's not that long. But by 1945, um, Martinez is also trying to purge members of his own government. There's rivalry amongst the armed forces. Some members of the military are concerned that these really extreme actions are alienating members of the oligarchy or alienating other members of uh, the El Salvadoran military and they're beginning to voice a bit of discontent with Martinez's rule. So Martinez began to go after other members of the army. He began to arrest and kill other colonels, for example, and he ends up being overthrown in 1945. And between 1945 and 1979, it is still military rule, but it is just more or less um, an exchange of presidents. So we have different military figureheads ruling between 1945 and 1979. Now, the extreme massacres and the genocide of Indigenous people, you know, to that degree where we saw 40,000 people killed in one year, that stops. But we still see, you know, the, the similar policies. We still see the Indigenous people being murdered if they refuse to leave their land. We still have this state of martial law where people cannot assemble legally, um, for example, to launch a strike on a coffee plantation. So it's very much, a, you know, a continuation of Martinez's rule in a less extreme form. But by 1979, we had another internal coup 
and we have the so-called military reform council take power. Now, these are still um, members of the armed forces in El Salvador, but they claim they're going to reform military rule in El Salvador. They want to perhaps introduce some more aspects of civilian rule to legitimise um, the country uh, and the country's leadership, because by this point we are again starting to see, um, you know, for example, student rebellions in San Salvador in the capital are becoming quite difficult to control. We are seeing these peasant collectives and these peasant unions and federations beginning to launch labour strikes again, even though they're illegal. Um, so the military is really scrambling for to some way out of this situation that it put itself in. And throughout this time, I again want to emphasise the United States is funneling millions of dollars each year into this military regime to train the armed forces. They're training the elite members of, for example, the El Salvadoran um, Special Forces, which was a death squad for all intents and purposes. They train them in, in US military schools, for example, the School of the Americas. And they're also training the generals, the colonels. They're providing millions of dollars worth of military equipment, guns, weaponry, so that the El Salvadoran military can continue to persecute these left-wing movements. But in 1979, this coup causes a bit of a rupture because we're seeing, of course, the left-wing opposes this coup as it opposed all of the military rulers. But the oligarchy is also a bit wary of this reform. They were perfectly happy with this dictatorship, so they actually begin to exert some of their political and economic influence with more radical um, and more you know, reactionary generals that are looking to reinstate full military control and, and reclaim power from this reform council. And this all coalesces and reaches ahead in 1980 when all of the left-wing groups um, so this, the Communist Party of El Salvador, which is outlawed, but is still operating um, you know, clandestinely, all of the indigenous associations, they all coalesce to create the Farabundo Martí Liberation Front, the FMLN in its Spanish acronym in 1980. So this is a guerrilla organisation. It enjoys membership in the hundreds of thousands in El Salvador at this time. And their aim is to overthrow the military regime, overthrow the El Salvadoran monarchy and establish a, a socialist republic in El Salvador. And they launched officially in 1980 a guerrilla war against the military regime. Now, this, of course, unifies the military reform council and the oligarchy. Of course, you know, as much as the oligarchy is against this reform, uh, they're even more against the FMLN and the guerrillas. So they unify against this force. The United States begins investing heavily in the armed forces. They send soldiers into El Salvador. They send military advisors into El Salvador. And we see in 1980, 1979, the beginning of the El Salvadoran civil war, which pits the FMLN guerrillas and their peasant um, supporters and their indigenous supporters against the military and the oligarchy and the United States government. Now, this is, this is a horrific civil war. This, this conflict uh, is, is easily one of the most brutal in Central America and in, in, you know, indeed in the whole world as far as civil wars go. You know, the sheer scale of the bloodshed that the oligarchy and the military unleashed against, and not, not just against members of the guerrilla organisations of the FMLN, against civilians that were simply suspected of being aligned to any of these left-wing movements or the guerrillas. Uh, we, we saw, you know, human rights violations on the scene scale. We saw women raped publicly 
you know, in front of entire villages by the military, by right-wing death squads that were financed by the United States. We saw children killed in some of the most, you know, disgusting ways, you know, thrown against brick walls, all, all sorts of really terrible, terrible human rights violations against against civilians. Now, it is true that these civilians were broadly supportive of the guerrillas. Most of them weren't involved in any sort of fighting whatsoever, but the military was that paranoid and violent um, and had been so accustomed to treating people in that way that we saw really obscene levels of, um, of violence and, and conflict take place. In fact, by the end of the war in 1992, so this war after about 12 years, we, we see 80,000 people killed. The vast majority of civilians or people aligned with the guerrillas. And this is, this is not um, by any means a hard and fast statistic. Uh, you know, there, there, are, there are new studies in El Salvador and Mexico that have suggested that the number is actually higher than 100,000 in terms of the deaths that this civil war caused. And I would, of course, as always, like to emphasize whose fault this civil war is. It is squarely the fault of the military and the oligarchy and the United States, which permitted all of this with, you know, the vast amounts of money and ammunition and weaponry that they were providing the forces of, of the right wing in, in El Salvador. And, you know, just to give you one very well-known example, right at the start of the Civil War in 1981, we have the um, El Mosote Massacre. Now, El Mosote is a department in the far west of El Salvador. It's a very high indigenous population. And we see over 1,000 civilians mostly women and children, are murdered and dumped in a pit by the El Salvadoran death squads that are aligned to the military. And we know now for a fact that US military advisors were there directing these death squads on how to do this. So they were actually being told directly by US personnel how to kill these people and where to put them. Um, so just to give you an idea of the sheer scale of, of the violence that was being perpetrated. Can we look through that period of 1980 to 19? 92 and the role of the Roman Catholic Church. And we, we talked about this a bit earlier. This is a really interesting phenomenon in El Salvador and it's, and it's unique in many ways to Central America because the Catholic Church was heavily influenced, at least in Central America, by liberation theology, which emerged in the 60s. So this was the idea that, you know, the teachings of of Jesus Christ and the Bible should be used in a practical way to to affect positive social change, to address social justice issues in Central America. In fact, anywhere that it's applied, but this is a very specifically a Central American phenomenon. So the local branches of the Catholic Church in, for example, El Salvador, generally took a very principled stance on this issue of the Civil War. And we have, of course, a very famous case. We have Oscar Romero, who's the Archbishop um, the Catholic Archbishop of El Salvador, speaking very publicly against the military and against the oligarchy, calling for them to stop their violence against the El Salvadoran uh, people, against the El Salvadoran poor. And for the bravery that he had to stand up and say that, he was murdered. He was shot giving mass. I just got to remember the exact date that that actually happened. In 1980, March 24th, 1980, he was giving mass and he was shot by members of the El Salvadoran military because he had stood up and criticised the military regime's policies and violence against everyday El Salvadorans. So the, the Catholic Church, at least at the local level in El Salvador, took a very, very positive role in this conflict in calling out the violations of the military in standing for social justice, in 
explaining that there was, you know, reason behind the demands of the, of the guerrilla organizations and their supporters. But, of course, at the wider level, for example, the Vatican itself is very reticent in criticizing uh, the El Salvador military. In fact, there were no major condemnations coming from uh, from the Vatican itself, from Italy. But at the local level, uh, certainly the Catholic Church, influenced by liberation theology, was a very, very important player uh, from that sort of moral and social perspective in calling out the hypocrisy of the military regime and the United States, and, and again, always defending social justice as they had historically, even during the independence wars and other areas and other periods like that. The American nuns massacred and, and, and the impact of that yeah. in America. That's a very good point. Um, I mean, look, as you just said, and it wasn't actually just nuns from the United States. There were nuns from European countries and Canada as well uh, that were murdered and raped by um, members of the El Salvadoran military. Now, this sent shockwaves throughout Europe, throughout the United States particularly, because you had this situation where you know U.S. citizens were murdered and raped by a government that the United States was financing. So, you know, we, we had religious organizations in the United States really for the first time actually criticizing, you know, these U.S. interventions in Central America. We had, you know, social organizations, civil rights organizations in the U.S. also calling attention to this. Now, it, it's sad that in some cases some of these organizations only did that once, it had begun affecting U.S. citizens, as it did with these nuns, but it really did bring home and hit home um, with, the, you know, just how how hypocritical the U.S. government was that it would even ignore or sort of cover up the deaths of their own citizens. And these, you know, these were people conducting charity, you know, services of charity in El Salvador. They had no you know, no link whatsoever to the guerrillas. They were not involved in the fighting. They were not even involved in any sort of supply chains for the guerrillas or anything like that, and they were murdered simply because they were associated with the Catholic Church, which the El Salvadoran military deemed an enemy at this point because of their outspoken stance. So, yeah, it was it, it definitely brought home, you know, the hypocrisy of the U.S. government and it did expose what was happening in El Salvador and in the rest of Central America because, of course, we had similar situations take place in Nicaragua, for example, with the Contra War. You know, foreign religious figures, nuns, volunteers were also murdered by members of the Nicaraguan military. So, yeah, it, you know, it was a very important aspect of this conflict. There was always this international dimension to the El Salvadoran civil war. And there was, of course, an international dimension to the conclusion of the El Salvadoran civil war, uh, because neither side had given up or announced fighting by 1992. And it ended up being Mexico, actually, that championed the peace accords in Chapultepec, which is, in, which is a city in Mexico. And in 1992, the FMLN and the El Salvadoran army signed a peace agreement. Now, the agreement was that the guerrillas would demilitarize, they would decommission, they would give up their weapons, and they would enter civilian life. And they did this to the letter. There is no active FMLN cadres or cells anymore, and the FMLN transitioned to a political party, um, still with the same objectives, um, but it is now, you know, participates in elections as opposed to being a guerrilla organization. And on the side of the military, well, the idea was that, you know, there would be a truth commission, that um, human rights violators would be brought to justice, that they would be fired from the military, expelled from the armed forces, and that these, you know, these right-wing death squads would 
essentially, you know, cease functioning or they would decommission as well. Now, by and large, these right-wing squads did decommission. They did cease their functioning. As for the human rights violators in the El Salvador and armed forces, they largely got off. They did, most of them did not get charged with anything. Now, this is also due to the fact that between 1992 and 2009, ARENA, which was the right-wing military-backed political party in the 80s, uh, dominated politics. So, of course, they covered up all of the violence and the, and the violations have refused to charge the high-ranking members of the military and even most of the soldiers, to be honest. So we continue to have this problem of impunity within the El Salvadoran armed forces. So even though the death squads largely disappeared, a lot of soldiers continue to act that way regardless, um, you know, among poor El Salvadoran communities throughout the 1990s and right up to today. And we also have a really difficult situation emerged after the civil war ends. Now, it began beforehand. It began in the 80s when the civil war, you know, was really, really intense. And we had a lot of El Salvadorans fleeing the country, migrating to the United States. Uh, now, a lot of these people were young, unemployed, had no connection whatsoever to anyone in the United States. A lot of them gravitated to cities like Los Angeles, which have large um, Latin American migrant communities. But what we had emerge were gangs, in Los Angeles um, from these, you know, these disaffected, unemployed El Salvadoran migrants. And, you know, at first these were simply street gangs that were sort of a way for these migrants to identify, to have a sort of set, collective sense of identity. But they quickly evolved into really large, efficient criminal organisations. And not so bad that we now have organisations like MS-13, Mara Salvatrucha, which is a really violent, powerful uh, gang that's involved in human trafficking, sex trafficking, drug trafficking, all sorts of violence. Not only in Los Angeles, they've now expanded back to El Salvador, Mexico, Spain, um, and there's a number of other gangs as well. There's Calle Viesiocho, uh, Street 18, which is named after a street in Los Angeles where these El Salvadoran gangs did like to congregate in the 1980s. And what we have is these gangs beginning in Los Angeles from this El Salvadoran migrant community. And then we have the US beginning its deportation policy and deporting a lot of these criminals back to El Salvador, even though they began their criminal activity in America. And they also export these practices back to El Salvador when they're deported. So these gangs have really quickly become very powerful, very, very dangerous, very violent, and they've dominated... El Salvadoran politics and they've dominated concerns, the concerns of El Salvador's population since the 1990s, really. And, you know, we, we saw the continuation of neoliberal economics in the 1990s, a lot of poverty, people were drawn to these gangs, the deregulation of the economy meant it was very easy for illegal, you know, drug trafficking, human trafficking to take place. There was already very weak institutions, a lack of oversight because the civil war had destroyed so much infrastructure. So the gangs became embedded in El Salvador's social and economic life. You know, we, we know that members, for example, of ARENA, the right-wing party, are very intimately tied to gangs like, the, like MS-13, like Mara Salvatrucha. And as a result, El Salvador continues to suffer from one of the highest homicide rates in the world. Until recently, there's been an interesting change, but um, El Salvador, you know, suffered from, you know, 60 to 70 deaths per 100,000 people in 2016-2017. That's an obscene amount of violence. And again, that same year, by 2017, uh, one in every 5,000 El Salvadoran women has been murdered a year 
which is, you know, this is obscene levels of femicide, violence against women, violence against children through sex trafficking. Unfortunately, it's been a really, really difficult and unstable and unsafe situation in El Salvador really since the civil war ended. Now, there was a brief period in 2000, between 2009 and 2019, when for the first time in El Salvador's history, we had a left-wing government come to power, or two left-wing governments. Um, they were the FMLN, so the former guerrilla movement won elections. First was Mauricio Fuentes, who was a journalist. He won the election in 2009. That He provided free school supplies, basic universal health care, so, you know, free universal health care for poor El Salvadorans. He established the medical program with Cuba, which is a really vital part of the public health care system in El Salvador, or at least it was until recently. And this has continued in 2014 when a former guerrilla commander, um, Salvador Sanchez Seren, wins the elections. He's also part of the FMLN. He continues these programs, but unfortunately, the, even the FMLN is unable to get to the heart of this issue of violence and gang warfare and instability, which is the main preoccupation for most El Salvadorans. And everyone knows anyway that Arena, the right-wing party, cannot fix this situation. Unfortunately, the FMLN couldn't, in spite of these very limited social programs, which did do good. They did not stop the violence. Um, they did not stop the massive waves of migration leaving El Salvador. Of course, the situation economically is still dire, um, to say the least. And in 2019, we had this the two-party political system broken pretty decisively in the 2019 elections because we have the election of Nayib Bukele. Now, he's a political outsider as far as, as far as El Salvador is concerned. He's the son of a millionaire. Originally, he was actually a member of the FMLN. He was a member of the left-wing party, uh, but he was expelled from the party for disagreements with the leadership of the FMLN. And he created his own party, Nuevas Ideas, New Ideas, and he ran on a platform of, you know, being a political outsider of anti-corruption, which is a common in Latin America. It's a popular sort of slogan for politicians to use. And he promised to eliminate the gang situation. He promised to get rid of this problem of insecurity. And that, in particular, won him close to 60% of the vote. He, he easily outstripped both Arena and the FMLN. Arena won 30%, so Nayib Bukele beat the, the next closest party by 30% of the vote, you know, a massive majority, in fact, a super majority in 2019. And we have since that time seen a, a very interesting sort of situation emerge in El Salvador. Bukele is a very difficult figure to pin down in terms of what he's actually trying to do in El Salvador. I mean, to begin with, what we do know is he's socially, he's very, very conservative, very right-wing, reactionary. He's spoken against abortion. He's spoken against same-sex marriage. You know, he's very opposed to union activity. He's very hostile to the FMLN, um, particularly because they expelled him from the party, I think, more so than anything else. So we have this very... Yeah, this very sort of anti-progressive social view for Nayib Bukele. But on the other hand, we also have this very interesting dynamic between Bukele and the US, where he's also very hostile to the United States. So he's actually expelled most of the US embassy staff from El Salvador. In fact, there's just a charged affairs. There isn't even a US ambassador in El Salvador at the moment. He's publicly attacked the Biden administration. He has expelled 
NGO programs from El Salvador. He said that if they're foreign funded, they can't actually operate in El Salvador. Um, he continues to support the oligarchy. He is himself, uh, you know, from a very wealthy family in El Salvador, which isn't surprising. But he's, you know, he's, he's taken a more independent foreign policy as well. For example, he's exploring ties with a lot of other countries. He's exploring ties with, for example, Mexico, which you would think they would already have very close ties. But actually, El Salvador did not do a lot with Mexico prior to Nayib Bukele. You know, exploring ties with uh, a lot of Middle Eastern countries that have become very, very active. Countries like China, Japan, Russia, you know, trying to diversify the foreign policy away from the United States, which is very interesting. Uh, he introduced Bitcoin as a national currency, um, which has had very mixed results, but it was actually against the advice of the US and the International Monetary Fund, which were very hostile to him after he did this. But most significantly, he has actually had success in his promise in fulfilling his promise to eliminate the problem of gangs. Now, the way he's gone about this has been very, very controversial. He implemented a state of exception towards the end of last year. There was a period of extreme violence where we saw 90 people killed in one day in El Salvador. So he implemented a state of exception, or a human exception is what it's called in El Salvador, so martial law, basically. And he rounded up 65,000 um, suspected gang members in El Salvador. So arrested them all. Um, in some cases, in some neighbourhoods of the capital and in some towns, he had to send in about 10,000 soldiers to actually besiege these settlements or these neighbourhoods to, to get the gang members, including leaders of the gangs. So it's not, it's not like he's, he's just going after low-level gang members. Um, and he opened up a major mega-prison. It's called the Centre um, for Containment of Terrorists, SECOT in Spanish, and it can house 40,000 people. So it's, it's a huge facility. He's arrested all these people. Now, a large number of these people, actually, I wouldn't say a large number. There, there is a number of them who are probably not gang members. Um, we know for a fact some unionists have been arrested as a part of this crackdown, some of his political opponents. So, of course, he's using this to cement his power. But something that is undeniable is the insecurity in El Salvador has dropped really dramatically. We have seen, as I said, that 60 to 70 deaths per 100,000 people, murders, has dropped to about 15. And in some cases, I think at the start of this year, it was down to like six or seven. So that's still high by, by international standards. But we are talking a massive improvement in public safety. People have gone and conducted interviews and studies now in El Salvador. There is incredible public support for this move. We're talking about 91% of the El Salvadoran population approves of this, this massive crackdown. Now, as I said, you know, it has received its criticism from various groups, but there cannot be any denying that this promise to, to address the issue of gangs has actually, to some degree, been fulfilled, which is very interesting. So we have this really, really interesting figure at the moment. He will definitely win the next election. There's no doubt about it. Most polls are putting him at 60 to 70% um, of the vote. So, you know, a, a super majority again. Um, he's going to break the power of ARENA and the FMLN even further. But it, it's certainly an interesting situation that El Salvador finds itself in. You know, the economic situation is dire. We're still seeing those massive waves of El Salvador and migrants heading towards the United States. We're still seeing poverty. We're still seeing all the corruption, um, you know, relating to gangs, things like that. But the silver lining is that we have actually seen an improvement in safety. People can actually leave their house at night now and not be scared that they won't return home. As I was doing research for this 
interview, I was, I was looking at interviews of El Salvadorans from a range of different websites, you know, different political persuasions. All sorts of people are really grateful that this has been, uh, that this crackdown was undertaken because it actually means that, you know, their children can walk to school and parents know that there's a good chance that they won't be kidnapped or extorted or whatever on their way to or from school, things like that, that, you know, we take for granted here, but that in El Salvador were daily preoccupations and still are daily preoccupations for most people. So look, we'll see what happens with El Salvador going forward. There are very core economic and social issues that haven't been addressed by Bukele and that won't be addressed because he's not interested in that. But certainly he has taken some very drastic and controversial measures that no other government in El Salvador has taken that do appear to be having some positive benefits. And you'll be listening to Sasha Gillies-Lakakis and we look forward to hearing more from Sasha. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.